get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works, and I love all things tech. And we are continuing our celebration of Tech Stuff's 10th anniversary. Now, all full disclosure here, I recorded an episode about services and companies that are younger than Tech Stuff, and I intended it to be one episode, but then when recording ended, we realized that I was creeping up over an hour, and that's a really long episode, so we're breaking it into two parts. So what you are about to hear is the first part of that two-part series where I really talk about some interesting things that have happened since the launch of Tech Stuff. So we're going to start with some products that and companies that did not exist at that time. And the first thing I want to talk about is Apple's iPad, and this was a doozy. If you are a long-time listener to Tech Stuff, you know what I thought about tablet computers. I remember talking with Chris Paulette, the original co-host of Tech Stuff, about Apple's rumored tablet computer. So before it even had a name, before it launched, I was convinced that if the company came out with a tablet, it would just be a fad, and after a short while, it would disappear. Because why would you need a tablet? I mean, I get a smartphone. I understand smartphones. You can put that in your pocket when you don't need it. You can carry it around wherever you go. And if you want something that is a more of a, a rich, involved experience, why not use a computer like a laptop or a desktop? I just couldn't see a good use case for a tablet. Now, this was largely because I was looking at it from my own personal perspective. It just seemed like a computer made more sense for anything beyond what you would use a smartphone for. And I thought the iPad will never take off. And boy, was I wrong. So the iPad came out in April 2010, and it did quite well, at least for the first few years. But then in 2014, things started to slide, and there was a year-on-year decline in iPad sales, with every quarter showing a decline up until the first quarter of 2018. That's the year that I'm recording this. And then we saw a modest increase of 2.1% in sales. So... Not a huge jump, obviously, but maybe what that tells us is that a lot of the folks who needed or wanted a tablet got one early on. Then they saw very little reason to buy a new one. So new ones come out and they just thought, well, I've already got one that works well enough. I don't need to upgrade yet, Uh, as opposed to a phone where you might upgrade every year or every two years. At any rate, the iPad showed once again that Apple can make a market when no one else can make a market for that particular product. Because tablet computers were not brand new when the iPad came out. They did exist before Apple's iPad. They just, no one had really found a a good consumer market for them. They were all very narrow use cases, like in the medical field or for people who were on remote work locations. Uh, Now the iPad had become a must-have consumer device thanks to Apple. Next, I'm going to talk about Bing. As in the search engine, Microsoft launched Bing in 2009. It was a competitive search engine, really meant to go up against Google. And in fact, Microsoft would often talk about Bing's search results compared to Google's and the speed at which it would return search results and the relevance and all that sort of stuff. According to StatCounter, Bing accounts for about 3.24% of search engine market share in May 2018. Google accounts for 90.14%. Now, that's global data. So 
Obviously, Microsoft's Bing, while it does have some market share, trails far, far behind Google. However, that also was a thing that did not exist back when Tech Stuff first started. Uh, Venmo, another product, or service rather, that launched after Tech Stuff did. Uh, Venmo launched in 2009 from co-founders Andrew Cortina and Ikram Magdan Ismail. Originally, it was a service that would let you send a text message to music groups and receive an MP3 via email in return. But that changed pretty dramatically. The co-founders of the company, who had attended college together back in 2001, ran into a bit of a problem when one of them stayed with the other but forgot his wallet. So the other one covered him. And when the the uh, uh, borrower decided they wanted to pay back their friend, uh, he did it with a check because there was no easy way to send money to his friend. There was just no way to easily trans transmit money to him without having access to a bank. And the two decided to pivot Venmo into a payment transaction service that could allow easy payments between individuals. A company called Braintree would buy Venmo in 2012 for $26 million, a princely sum. PayPal would then go on to acquire Braintree for $800 million in 2013. So Venmo is now part of PayPal. And I find that a lot of people are surprised by that. I met young folks who said, no, no, I would never use PayPal. I use Venmo. And I said, well, Venmo's owned by PayPal, so technically you're still using PayPal. And they were surprised. But yes, Venmo is still very active. It is a useful service. It makes transi- transmitting payments very, very easy between individuals. Uh, so I actually really like that service a lot. Four squares, another thing that did not exist when Tech Stuff launched back in 2008. Uh, it was technically built in 2008, but it did not launch till 2009. Dennis Crowley and Naveen Selvadurai built Foursquare after working on a similar project earlier called Dodgeball. This was a location-based check-in service. Now, Google acquired Dodgeball back in 2005. And eventually, Google chose to shut down the service. And so the co-founders went on to create a similar service that would let people check into locations using a mobile device. And you could share your location with your friends. So it was kind of like a social network that was location-based. But in 2014, Foursquare would shift that feature to a companion app called Swarm. And it was right around the time when my wife decided she was never going to use Foursquare again. And Foursquare became more of a recommendation engine for restaurants, shops, and activities based off of user location and user preference. So in other words, you could use Foursquare to uh, get a recommendation for maybe a restaurant in an unfamiliar city that happens to be near your area. And it happens to fall within the certain parameters that you prefer. Maybe you really like Indian food and says, hey, there's this cool Indian place. It's two blocks over. You should go check it out. But the check-in stuff, all the stuff that you would use to check into a location and eventually acquire the the mayor position of that location if you checked in enough, all of that got shifted over to Swarm. And uh, I don't know what the numbers are right now for Swarm and Foursquare. Like what what's the user engagement? How many people are using it? Was there a drop-off or have they stayed strong? Uh, I know that my wife and I both stopped using it right around that time, but that's totally anecdotal and therefore not at all uh, reliable as far as uh, anal- analysis goes. Speaking of analysis, then we have Wolfram Alpha. We actually did an episode about Wolfram Alpha way back in the day. Chris Paulette and I did when it first launched. 
Wolfram Alpha is a computational knowledge engine. So it looks a lot like a search engine, but that's not exactly what Wolfram Alpha does. It launched in May 2009, and it answers factual queries by computing results from curated data. So it has access to tons of information, and it can pull relevant information based upon what you ask it. And it it answers the query directly. It doesn't provide you a list of search results where you'll find the answer. It'll tell you the answer. So, for example, I could type in the question, how far away from Earth is Polaris? And Wolfram Alpha would tell me it's 430.9 light years away. Plus, it would give me more information in units like parsecs, kilometers, and miles. Or I could ask it, what is the area of a square with 14-foot-long edges? And it would tell me the answer is 196 square feet, or 18.21 square meters. So in other words, you can ask Wolfram Alpha these questions. It will return the actual relevant answer instead of sending you a list of links where you could find the answer if you search through it, which is pretty useful for very particular types of queries. It doesn't work for everything, but it works really well for these kinds of uh, applications. I have more to say about some of the services and companies that launched since Tech Stuff became a official podcast in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Another thing that launched after Tech Stuff was Snapchat. That launched in September 2011, and boy, howdy, the Snapchat story is one I will have to cover in a full episode sometime in the future. Now, here's the summarized Snapchat story that I will expound upon in much more detail when I do cover this company. Three college buddies get together to create an app that would allow users to send photos to each other. And the photos would only stay active for a limited time before they were deleted. And the original app was called Peekaboo, P-I-C-A-B-O-O, and later was renamed Snapchat. The three founders were Frank Reggie Brown, who came up with the idea for the app, but he didn't have any real business or coding knowledge. Then you had Evan Spiegel, who was sort of the business guy, and Bobby Murphy, who was sort of the coder, and they brought this idea to life. Spiegel and Murphy would end up creating a company that shared the ownership of Snapchat between the two of them, but it left Reggie Brown out of it. And Brown would later sue the other two co-founders, and eventually the three would settle out of court for about $158 million dollars. And that was a big deal. You see, Snapchat was heading toward an initial public offering in 2017, and that had the potential of turning the owners into billionaires. But Spiegel and and uh, 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 Murphy felt that Brown really didn't contribute very much apart from that initial idea. He wasn't, according to them, he was not instrumental in actually making it happen. And so they objected to the idea of him being an owner in this company. When Snapchat did hold its IPO, it had an opening share price of $24, which gave Snapchat a market capitalization of $33 billion based on the number of shares that were available. On the day I'm researching this, however, Snap, the code for Snapchat's parent company, is trading at $13 per share or so. So a little bit more than half of what the opening price was when it first went up on 2017. So why 
the fall from grace? Well, there are a lot of reasons. For one, Snapchat had a major redesign that angered a lot of users, and the most recent analyst reports I can find are optimistic that stock prices will continue to climb, although maybe not quite up to that $24 per share limit. It may be a little lower than that, but that the company as a whole is starting to rebound. In March 2010, Pinterest launched. That was founded by Evan Sharp, Ben Silberman, and Paul Ciara. Pinterest lets users create image boards, kind of like giant bulletin boards of pictures. And you can group images together in whatever way you happen to like. Maybe you have a specific interest and you want to collect images that relate to that interest. I have friends who are costumers, for example, and they have Pinterest boards that are separated into various types of costumes with uh, representations of costumes that they find really, really compelling. And they use that to help make their own patterns and their own designs for their own costumes or costumes that they get on commission. Uh, I have other friends who do this for foods. They collect various really great pictures of food. I always see that the pictures of food tend to look better than the food tends to taste when I ever get my chance to actually try it. But I don't really object to this. So Pinterest was a very popular and different way of sharing information with a social network. It took a little while to catch on, but in August 2011, it was named one of the 50 best websites of 2011 by Time Magazine. And at that point, it started growing rapidly with users. And by 2013, the company was valued at $3.8 billion. The next one I want to talk about, I just did a full episode on uh, the Instagram story. But Instagram launched in October 2010. Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger launched it on iOS exclusively at first. Android got its own version a couple years later in 2012. It's a photo sharing service. I'm sure you're familiar with it. If not, go back and listen to those episodes. They'll tell you all about it. So I'm not going to dive into detail here, but Instagram's done pretty well for itself. It got acquired by Facebook in 2012 for a billion buckaroos, which that's not a bad chunk of change. Uh, next, uh, in June 2009, Quora launched. That's a question and answer site that aims to be a little more helpful than other similar sites like Yahoo Answers. Adam D'Angelo, who used to work for Facebook and who I talked about a bit in the Instagram episodes, was one of the co-founders. So was Charlie Cheever. Uh, and they put together this idea, created the infrastructure. The questions posed to Quora are curated and answered by the community of users. Users can upvote or downvote answers to help the most relevant responses rise to the top. So it's not quite to the point of necessarily uh, experts answering your questions. It can happen. There are a lot of experts who do contribute to Quora, but uh, it's whatever answers the community feels are really the most helpful that end up rising to the top of the list. In 2011, Google launched Google+, and originally it was an invite-only social network. That was for the beta testing. I, I got one of those invitations, and so... For a brief while, I felt like one of the cool kids. It was just me, a bunch of entrepreneurs, and a ton of tech journalists. And it was like the best social network ever because we were all a bunch of dorks. But uh, eventually, it opened up to everybody. And it, you would allow you to organize people into circles. So you wouldn't just have friends. You could organize your friends via specific circles, what, however you wanted to define it. So maybe you had a circle of friends who were related to a specific interest or a specific event. So, for example, I work at the Georgia Renaissance Festival. 
in the springtime. So I might have a circle that's just dedicated to people who also work at the Georgia Renaissance Festival. And then I can post to that circle and only those friends will see the, that post. And that way I can keep uh, things that are irrelevant to anyone else off their feeds. They don't get sick of me posting to just a general feed when really I just need to post to this one specific group. You could also create a circle of people that you didn't want to see anything. So you could collect people that were problematic. You know, instead of blocking them one by one, you just throw them in the same group with everybody else. Now, at one point, Google Plus was really tightly coupled with YouTube comments. It required commenters to create a Google account with a real name if they wanted to participate and leave comments on YouTube. And Google faced a lot of resistance with that. And the company eventually backpedaled a bit in 2015. Now, the concept behind it was, I think, well-intentioned. The idea was that they wanted to make sure that they cut down on cyberbullying, on harassment, and they thought if users have to have their their handle associated with their real identity, they would be less likely to engage in bad behavior. But it also meant that people who were part of vulnerable populations uh, or had an identity that was a public-facing identity that was different from their private identity, it, it penalized them. So that's why there was a lot of resistance against uh, this move. Also in 2015, analysts estimated that the active profiles on Google Plus topped out at about 111 million users, as opposed to a billion over at Facebook. And only 6.7 million users had 50 posts or more with only 3.5 million having 50 posts or more in the last 30 days. So it wasn't very active. Like, they, they might have had 111 million users, but people were not using it very frequently. So it is not a hopping place like Facebook. And then in 2011, Twitch.tv launched. It was a spinoff of the live streaming site Justin.tv, more and more users on Justin.tv were using the service to stream video game play sessions. And so Twitch was born to port that over to another platform and kind of free up Justin.tv for other stuff. The funny thing is, eventually Justin.tv would go away and Twitch.tv would stick around. The service is the top live streaming video game platform in the United States, outperforming YouTube, YouTube gaming, which is impressive. YouTube, of course is enormous and has Google behind it, but was unable to dominate the live stream video game space the way Twitch has. It has 15 million daily active users and 2 million broadcasters every single month. Now, I have a lot more to say about services and companies that launched after Tech Stuff did, but let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. And we're back. All right. So let's talk about some other companies and services that launched after tech stuff. How about Tinder? Well, I did episodes on this recently as well, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it. But Tinder started out as an app called Matchbox, developed out of the startup incubator Hatch Labs, which in itself was operated by two companies called IAC and Extreme Labs. IAC also owned Match.com, so Matchbox was kind of sort of related to the established dating service. But Sean Rad and Joe Munoz uh, and a few others turned the dating 
scheme into kind of an online flirting game using gesture controls of swiping to create sort of a, a fun, addictive experience. And Tinder was born in 2012. The full story of Tinder is pretty interesting and filled with ups and downs. So check out the recent episodes to learn more. Then how about Periscope? Now, I did an episode about Periscope, but that was way back in 2015. Periscope is the live streaming service that works on Twitter, and it began as a project headed by Kayvon Bekpour, an executive at Blackboard Mobile, and uh, Joe Bernstein. They founded Periscope in February 2014, and Bekpour met with Jack Dorsey of Twitter, uh, and soon Twitter made an offer to buy Periscope. Estimates for that offer range from $75 million to $100 million. Twitter acquired Periscope in January 2015, and the app itself was still in closed beta at that time. Periscope and Twitter ended up killing a competing service called Meerkat, which launched in February 2015. The Periscope service is still active today, and you can live stream straight from Twitter. I've done it a few times myself, although not recently. It's a very convenient way to do it. You can just use your mobile phone. And you use the cameras on the mobile phone. You can use either the forward-facing or back-facing cameras. It works on iOS and on Android. And it's kind of a fun way to connect with people while you are live at some event or some some location. Next, I'll chat quickly about Discord. Jason Citron, a game development studio founder, was frustrated that there was not really a, a good voice over internet protocol tool set that worked well for gamers. because. Some games incorporate voice chat services and others don't. And some of the ones that do have lousy implementations or they have features that you might not like. So, for example, there might be a game where you can chat uh, using a component within the game. But if you do, then other people who aren't on your team can also hear you. Sometimes it's a proximity thing. So let's say you're playing a squad-based action game. And you want to be able to coordinate with your teammates, but you don't want someone on the other team to hear what you're up to. And you use the tools in the game, and if someone's close enough to you, they can hear everything you say and then report it back to their fellow teammates. Well, using something like Discord, you could create a server and have private communications with your team and not worry about anyone else overhearing you if, uh, if in fact, that was your desire. And so... Citron uh, decided that he wanted to create such a tool because it didn't exist out there. And his company, Hammer and Chisel, secured funding to develop such a service. And they called it Discord and launched it in 2015. It quickly found popularity through online communities like Twitch and Reddit. And users can communicate with other players or even audiences through Twitch. And communication can be through voice or chat. Discord was in the news a lot over the last couple of years because it is very easy to set up a server and users can create handles tied to throwaway email addresses to protect their anonymity. So you don't have to sign in with a real person name. You can create a throwaway Gmail account, for example, and then create an associated Discord account and be completely anonymous. And some people belonging to the alt-right movement Uh, specifically white supremacists and neo-Nazis, began using Discord servers to coordinate real-world demonstrations. And Discord responded by shutting down those servers and making it clear the company does not tolerate hate groups. And I'll have to do a full episode about Discord in the future, because it is a pretty fascinating story. Or how about Hyperloop? I've done several episodes about Hyperloop. I won't go into great detail, but 
This is the transportation mode that was uh, suggested by Elon Musk. Uh, he made this proposal for transportation public back in 2012. And the basic idea is you create a tube and you pump out most, but not all of the air. And that helps cut down on air resistance. Uh, you put trains inside the tube and they use pressurized air to create lift. That's they call it like air ball bearings. It's sort of like an air hockey table. Uh, although typically you would have the train pushing air downwards to create this lift. And you would use powerful magnets to propel the train cars at incredible speeds. And you could make trips in a fraction of the time it would take to drive between cities. And without all the hassle of maneuvering through airports to just take a quick flight. It's meant to be a solution to travel between locations that are really too close for efficient air travel. The expense of gas and the amount of time you would spend trying to get on the plane and off the plane uh, saying, well, that that's kind of frustrating if the two cities are fairly close together, but they're still too far apart for you to easily drive between. That's what Hyperloop is meant to uh, to solve that that kind of problem. So the example that was always used was travel between San Francisco and Los Angeles, which would take several hours to drive, more than an hour to fly, just from the point of entry at the airport to the point where you're stepping off the plane at the, your destination, but less than an hour using this Hyperloop approach. There are a few different companies that are experimenting with Hyperloop-like designs, but most of them take a slightly different approach than what Musk's proposal originally said. Then, let's see, in 2013, a new service called Slack was released. <sighs> Slack. Well, Slack is a team communication and collaboration tool, and it expanded from an internal utility. It was created by a guy named Stuart Butterfield, and it, he made it for a company called TinySpec that was trying to develop a game. And it was a way for his team to communicate with each other uh, in real time and also to coordinate and various tasks. And it was really effective. So it got repackaged as a product for the general use of companies and individuals throughout the world. It includes stuff like persistent chat rooms that you can associate with particular projects. So for example, we could have a tech stuff chat room for internal work here at How Stuff Works. Uh, or you could use direct messaging. It's got a lot of other stuff in it. It's undeniably a useful tool, and I kind of hate it. But that's not because it's a bad tool. It's not a bad tool. It's perfectly fine. I hate it because it creates yet more notifications that can interrupt me as I do research and writing. And so this is where I get all grouchy and old. Uh, the tool is fantastic. I just wish I could lock myself away in a quiet library sometimes when I'm trying to put an episode together. The creation of so many real-time communication tools creates an expectation among certain people that you should get back to them as soon as a message is sent to you. So in other words, if someone else sends me a message, they think I should quickly respond to that, even though it's supposed to be asynchronous communication, and I've got a lot of stuff going on. In other words, it's really it's really disruptive if you're working on a task that cre requires a lot of concentration. Plus, it's really messing with my PUBG games in the office. As Tari can tell you, I need to work on that. She's better at it than I am, and she's only played twice. Next, how about Chat Roulette? 
This online service randomly matches up people in online chat conversations, typically through webcams, and it was designed by Andrei Ternovsky. Back when he was attending high school in Russia, he launched the site in November 2009, and it grew steadily, and it also got a pretty dark reputation. Well-earned, you might say. It was a place where guys were jumping from connection to connection in a quest to find women willing to get naked in front of a camera. Oh, and also had a reputation for guys exposing themselves to the camera. Not that everyone did this, mind you, but enough of them did do it to earn the service this reputation. A similar service called Omegle launched that very same year, several months earlier. This one was designed by uh, Leaf K. Brooks. Omegle initially only allowed for text chat, but by 2010 also had a video chat service built into it. And I've seen creative uses both of Omegle and Chat Roulette in fun ways, but sadly, that tends to take a backseat to all the coverage about people who are using it to, you know, either get naked or ask other people to get naked for them. So, eh, you know, it, you can't always predict how your product is going to be used once it gets released into the wild. I have no idea if that was Andre's idea when he first decided to create Chat Roulette, but it's certainly the way a lot of enough people have used it for it to get that reputation. Square was founded in 2009, and it launched the following year in 2010. Square is a company that was co-founded by Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey. So Dorsey's been in charge of a couple of companies that have made a lot of uh, impact in the tech sphere in the last decade. The concept of Square is a technology that makes it easier to accept credit cards as a form of payment. The original card readers were square in shape, and they were dongles that you would plug into a mobile device's audio jack, a 3.5 millimeter jack. So back when audio, when your smartphones and stuff had those, these days you need either an adapter or you have to get a different uh, model of square. In 2013, the company introduced the Square Stand, which allows for an iPad to act like a point of sale system. And I've seen these everywhere. Uh, a lot of the coffee shops I go to use these. A lot of the places downstairs here at our uh, office building, they use them as well. It's just a really convenient way to create a point-of-sale system. And so what Square has done is lowered the barrier of entry for owners of small businesses to accept credit card payments for their goods or services. And I'll have to do a full episode on that company at some point as well. All right, guys, that wraps up this first part of the stuff that came out after Tech Stuff debuted. In our next episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about some other services and companies that started up. And we're also going to take a look at some that didn't stand the test of time. They launched after Tech Stuff became a show, and they aren't around anymore. So make sure you tune in to hear that episode. If you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, get in touch with me. Tell me what they are. I don't know otherwise. You can do that by sending me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 